Welcome to another edition of Franklin Faith Forum, formerly known as A Rabbi, a Minister, and a Priest Walked Into a Radio Station. We are happy this morning to be recording in the Franklin TV and radio station. I am Pandora Carlucci. Jay Horrigan and I are co-hosts of this show. Jay is not here just yet, but we expect him momentarily. Our faith leaders are Rabbi Tom Alpert, Temple at Siam, Pastor Jacob Yunker, Franklin United Methodist Church, and Reverend Doreen Auten, Franklin Federated Church, and they use the lens of faith to inform our discussions. And before we jump into our discussions, we always allow our, or rather not allow, we welcome our faith leaders to give us an update on what's happening in their congregations and in their houses of worship. And leading the discussion this morning will be Reverend Doreen. Good morning, Doreen. Good morning, Pandora, and thank you so much. So just taking a breath after the Easter season, while we're still in the Easter season, but after that holiday, which was wonderful, just just some wonderful events going on uh, during Holy Week and on Easter Sunday. So it will be quiet a little bit. We have our thrift shop is thriving. It's it's getting more traffic and more income than we anticipated. We've been able to do some mission outreach, providing free clothing to, to a couple of families and situations in need. So it really is a mission for the community, and I hope people will come by. It's open Wednesday from 4 to 7 and Saturday from 9 to 1. And then the other thing we have coming up is that I will be installed at Franklin Federated Church on May 21st at 3 p.m., So one of the denominations we're affiliated with, the United Church of Christ, has a ceremony of installation, and that's where I hold my ordination. And then the other affiliated church is the American Baptist Church. That's also part of Franklin Federated. But there will be a ceremony where I'll be officially blessed and installed. We'll make covenants to each other, the congregation and me, and community members that are there. So you'll all be invited. I hope you'll come. Well, first, I want to say thank you. It's good to know that the thrift shop is up and running and serving a need in our community. And thank you for telling us about your ordination and um, installation, rather, on May 21st. It will be a wonderful opportunity for not only your congregation, but for all of us in Franklin. And thank you for telling us about that. Reverend Younger. Um, Much like Reverend Otten, we are kind of slowing down after the intensity of Lent and Easter. But there are a couple of things just to be generally aware of, and not so much to share details, but just kind of to put on everyone's uh, radar as we move into the spring and the summer has been our tradition over the last couple of summers to do uh, free community cookouts on the church property. We provide hamburgers and hot dogs and Uh, chips and just enjoy a nice picnic out on the church lawn, typically once a month, generally starting in May, but it'll kind of depend on how the holidays fall. And May is a a busy month with uh, Mother's Day, uh, Dean College graduation. And we are also kicking off in May a capital campaign for the church, or at least doing the exploratory phase of that. So we will begin Uh, having some public meetings about uh, what we hope to accomplish and getting people's input uh, on that. I will just say uh, that's not just a conversation for my community. I think it's also an important conversation for members of the general Franklin (coughs) 
community to be aware of, of as well. The church has been around for 150 years. It is a, uh, while not officially on the historic register, it is a historic landmark in the town of Franklin. Uh, And I think people appreciate that historicity. Uh, And so if they want to learn more about that and some of the plans we have for the building, uh, just keep a lookout on our church website for information of that upcoming capital campaign. I think that's exciting. And, And besides being a local historic structure, Um, You're located in the heart of the cultural district, and one of the goals of that uh, cultural district is preservation and looking to structures, preservation associated with a built environment or with an individual contribution or a particular action. So that, you're right, it does extend to the greater community. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome, and I would be remiss to say that if anyone makes them wants to make a large donation to <laughs> said campaign, I will happily, you know, mm. note you on a plaque somewhere mm. or in a book somewhere so that your name can be included as a contributor to the campaign. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Rabbi Tom. Um, I like that, too. Yeah. but And we're glad to take whatever's left over. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, th- this period from Passover, which just happened uh, to Shavuot, which is uh, Pentecost about 50 days later, is generally a really busy time in the life of synagogues, and uh, we're no exception. I want to start by saying that our for the second night of Passover, we had a community seder, which uh, was again hosted as it has been for many years before COVID by the Franklin Federated Church. So thank you to Reverend Otten and the church. We had a bunch of people there and a wonderful seder, and that was special. Um, let's see. We move from Passover, not too far after, is Yom HaShoah, which is the Jewish Holocaust Remembrance Day. And that will take place this year on Monday night at 7 o'clock with a service to commemorate that. Uh, the community is welcome at Temple at Saim at the Temple Building, 900 Washington Street. Um, what What's the date? You said Monday. Uh, it, is this, it is Monday, the whatever Monday is. Uh, this coming Monday. The this 17th. coming Monday, yes. The Monday that is coming up. Which, you're right. Thank you. They don't know that yet. <laughs> Monday the 17th, 17th of April. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> at 7 o'clock. So that, let's see, um, and in case we don't get back together, a couple of things. Um, one is that uh, Reverend Otten and I are doing a pulpit swap on May 5th and 7th. She will be coming to services on Friday night at Temple at Saim at 7.30 to give a sermon, at, and I will be coming to the Federated Church on that Sunday, the 7th, May 7th, to give a sermon. So if people are interested, please join us. And just a little bit out, but people should know about this. The Interfaith Council has a, has a program that it does typically every other year. Well, pre-COVID every other year. So we're picking it back up again called the Voices of Faith Concert. And what this is, is the Interfaith Choir, which... Uh, sings on Thanksgiving, gets back together and does some songs, and each individual house of worship has a few songs related to a particular theme. So this is always a high point. It's it's wonderful, wonderful music. Please join us. That will be the day of Reverend Otten's installation. That is May 21st, but at 6 o'clock, 
and it will be, I am fairly confident, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on Jordan Road. So if you go to the Franklin Interfaith Council website, fic.org, you can find more information about this. And they might have pushed it to 7 o'clock to accommodate my installation. We could, we'll firm it up at the next interfaith meeting. But I thought let's, that's what let's get that cleared up yes. so everyone can have it on their calendars. <laughs> yes. Thank you. But you'll be able to find information for sure on the Interfaith Council's Facebook page and hopefully on the website as mm-hmm. well. well. Good. I think we have a lot to look forward to uh, that's happening at all of the congregations. And I, um, I know that people will put it on their calendar. They will access the Franklin Interfaith website and the Facebook page to find out more about these. Um, particular events. This month, our topic uh, of discussion by our faith leaders is the relationship between faith and the world, or perhaps in another way, between the sacred and the secular. The question that followed that on the briefing sheet that I received was, what role should or do houses of worship play in regards to social issues? And this is a broad topic and one to share a lot of knowledge and on my part, and I'm, I'm thinking others listening in as, as myself, to learn from our faith leaders about this. So when I looked at it, I thought, this is so interesting, inform- informative, thought-provoking, and will really give everybody uh, an opportunity to expand the lens of faith and listen to the, the intersection between faith and the world. And so I would open it up to our faith leaders with that um, emerging question, what role should or do houses of worship play in regards to social issues? And and I believe that um, I'm going to ask... I started last month. <laughs> I'm going to ask Pastor Yunker if he would... Is that okay? That's okay. If you would lead it off. You all don't know they're out in listening land. <laughs> but we try and put our fingers on our nose to not be the first one. But just to keep it flowing. So I think for my tradition in the United Methodist Church has a long-standing history of speaking to and about social issues. The Methodist Episcopal Church was one of the first religious entities to, at a denominational level, actually put together what was a social creed. So it passed denominationally the first social creed within the Methodist tradition in 1908. And the social creed at that time stood for and supported workers' rights and in particular unionization. It wasn't long after that that other religious organizations very quickly followed suit. Um, But it's a proud tradition within Methodism of having these social statements. Uh, So I, I In my tradition, I would say the church has a very pivotal role in speaking to societal concerns and brings to the conversation, much like this show, kind of a lens of faith of how to ethically think through whatever the particular concern concern might be. I don't know if we'll get into the the nitty-gritty of specific issues or how, but I will just say, you know, within the United Methodist tradition, very briefly, there's this book, which gets longer and longer every year, called The Book of Resolutions, which has all of the social teachings of the United Methodist Church in it. And that book gets edited every four four years, added to, taken away, etc. 
who um, edits the book of uh, resolutions for the United Methodist Church? So the book of resolutions uh, is a living document that's edited every four years by what's called the General Conference of the Church. It is a global body of equal representation between laity and clergy. And every, every church and kind of regional body of the church is represented uh, equitably. So based on numbers, not unlike the U.S. House of Representatives, the general conference is kind of the number of people is dictated. So from New England, I believe we have Oh, gosh. I wasn't prepared for this question. I believe it's three <laughs> clergy and three laity who attend the global gathering of the General Conference. And I believe that the number of delegates is some just north of 800 members. So, mm. um, But again, from all over the world, it's a major, um, a major gathering. And actually, they're slated to meet next May, no, a year from now, a year from now. Mm. So very quickly approaching. Thank you for giving us that background um, information, and, and I'm sorry that it was unexpected. That's all right. It's a very different protocol than maybe some other traditions yes. where, say, the clergy just gather, or not just clergy, but just the yes. bishops gather, or a single office within the church um, makes such statements. Yeah. Rabbi Tom, the, the same question to you with regards to uh, the role that houses of worship play with regards to social issues. Well... As with uh, the Methodists, in the Reformed Jewish tradition, this has always been central. Um, the, it's said, it was said by the rabbis years ago that the world is actually held up by three things, by Torah, by worship, and by acts of loving kindness. And acts of loving kindness already implies you're supposed to do something. The Torah says, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice, you shall pursue. And the prophets, Isaiah says, Cry with a full throat, do not hold back, let your voice resound like a shofar, like a horn. And so these have been taken in the Reformed tradition uh, now for the, the hundred, almost 200 years that we've been around in the U.S. as saying we have to get involved in uh, changing the world. Um, it, it, the, the, the phrase uh, in Hebrew is tikkun olam, the, the repair of the world, it implies that God gave us a world that was imperfect on purpose so that we could be God's partners in making it better. And so the reform movement over the years has taken stands on civil rights, workers' rights, um, women and LGBTQ rights, you name it. We have been involved in attempts to uh, make a better world. Each the, the, the reform movement has a set of, resol of resolutions. Uh, Judaism is somewhat less um, organized as a general rule on this kind of thing than, say, the Methodists. The notion of actually going through and looking back over them and trying to put them together and revise them is sort of not what we do. It's more like accretion, like this adds on to this and this. And you just That's why our services are so long. Uh, but, uh, so, but the reform movement, uh, the Union for Reform Judaism, the congregational uh, uh, body, comes up with resolutions on a regular basis on social issues. Uh, the um, the rabbinic group, the Central Conference of American Rabbis, comes up with resolutions on a regular basis about social issues. We have an organization in Washington called the Religious Action Center, the uh, which uh, my personal favorite story about the Religious Action Center is that the uh, table in their conference room was where the Voting Rights Act 
uh, bill was uh, revised and drafted. So we have uh, the Religious Action Center gets very involved in pushing for matters, and now uh, there is an organization of Religious Action Center, RAC Massachusetts, that is starting to push for issues here within the state. We're just getting started. So, and we bring our students down each year if they, you know, from different congregations to uh, learn, among other things, how Reform Judaism connects with important issues and how, to, and then they go practice lobbying their members of Congress and senators about those issues. So, um, and I've led students on that. It's, it's really very exciting. And then each congregation has its own set of choices and uh, does its own work. For example, our congregation and others here in Franklin um, have been uh, sponsors of the of a bill to um, have free school meals for all children. And I was very excited to see uh, last night, I believe, that the uh, as of the day we're taping, that the House of Representatives in Massachusetts, the leadership has. Uh, call to make that permanent in their new budget. So if that, you know, it's still a long ways to go, but that's the kind of thing that we've been involved in. We've lobbied about it, and I uh, am hoping that's going to come to fruition. That's the kind of thing that we do and feel and need to be involved in. I think that you've shared with us kind of the the broader global issues and, and also with the example of student lunches, something that's right home in our community. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at that question, the role that houses of worship can play in social issues, mm -hmm. food for children at school is would be right in, in line with that. And, you know, and there are houses of worship of all faiths that have been involved in this. And so um, I think we're, you know, there are obviously plenty of folks from, from uh, other perspectives, but the, the, the faith perspective has been an important part of this. Thank you. Thank you very much, Reverend Otten. Thank you, Pandora. Uh, so my the faith traditions of the Franklin Federated Church, which is associated with the United Church of Christ and the American Baptist Church, they are both congregational polity, so the denominational body doesn't speak for any particular issue, uh, but they, they seek covenant and collaboration. They make resolutions at their annual meetings on particular issues. And I, again, I am with the United Church of Christ, so I'm more familiar with that. But they make regular resolutions about societal issues. And I would say they're, they're quite focused on social justice. Um, and I just, I just want to put this in. I, I, most places, houses of worship, are all on board with missions, with giving, with helping people. But I think that is different from justice issues. So I, I love the analogy that if you see people falling, you know, floating by in the river, you pull them out, you give them a blanket, you keep them warm. But eventually you want to walk upstream and see why all these people are falling in the river. And that's sort of the justice piece. And, from you know, uh, social justice is a huge passion of mine. And I have always thought churches relevant when they're involved in that. But I would say that among the congregants, it's pretty tricky that this is what makes people in the pews anxious is that because problems are complex, right? And so everyone might even agree that there's a problem, but in terms of how to address it, what to say about it, what to do about it, there's such differences of opinion. And people fear if we 
talk about these differences. There'll be conflict. People will leave. You can't get too political. This is where it comes in. Is the church being too political? Shouldn't there be more of a separation of that? So I find it as a faith leader hard to navigate that. People's fear of entering in, stepping on toes, offending someone. So I don't know what other people, uh, if you have experienced that same thing. So just two Sundays ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which was uh, two Sundays ago from when this was is being taped, was Palm Sunday in the Christian tradition. And just to kind of give a very brief synopsis of my message on that day, I gave a message uh, that's the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. The people cut down branches and put them in the road, and they're shouting, Hosanna. And... Uh, the word Hosanna is used in the gospel as a transliteration of a word that um, has some liturgical um, connotations, but kind of just kind of generally speaking, the term means like, Lord, save us. It's like a plea of salvation. And so I use that. Uh, we were reading Matthew's gospel and the, the question comes up in the story, <clears throat> Jesus enters Jerusalem in the temple and some of the religious leaders are going, hey, these kids, they're being loud, shouting, Hosanna. Can you make them quiet down? And so the refrain of my message on Sunday was, what do we do when the children cry, Hosanna? Lord, save me. Uh, And related it to the school shooting in Nashville, but also some of the budget uh, conversations that are happening in the town of Franklin around school funding, and in particular, three middle school students who stood up in a budget subcommittee meeting and said, we do not have access to school counselors and we need them. So what do we do when the children cry Hosanna? It's a toughy thing, a a toughy thing. It is a tough thing (laughs) to bring up those issues for all the reasons Reverend Doreen just mentioned. I think from, I think my approach from the pulpit or in the congregation in general is to raise the awareness of it such that people are forced to think about it. For me personally, I don't always, sometimes I do, but I don't always provide the solution to the problem, but just to say, this is an issue as a person of faith we need to be thinking about. Uh, and, and as it relates to that particular sermon, it was, what, are, what do we do when the children cry, Hosanna? Do we march into town like Jesus? Or do we try to silence them like these religious leaders were asking Jesus to do? But I was real careful because I find that the controversy lies not in the issue. That's usually on people's minds. Mm -hmm. The controversy comes in when you say, but here's what we have to do about it. Mm -hmm. I don't, from my own experience, don't think worship is necessarily the place to start saying, well, here's the issue and here's what we need to do about it. But I do think worship, from my experience, is a great place to raise the question to then call people to a table to say, this is the issue and we we need to talk about it. It's important. So that's how I deal with that situation. Rabbi Tom. I think it also, a lot of it depends on the issue and the situation. I, I start by reminding everyone that there is a federal law called the Johnson Amendment, which prohibits uh, houses of worship from endorsing candidates. There are efforts to um, change this or to somehow get out of it, but it 
we, our movement has strongly felt in favor of that as important to separate religion from politics, and we do that. Uh, and uh, and I scrupulously abide by it. Uh, the reform movement scrupulously abides by it. So we never endorse candidates. We just don't do that. We stay as far away from even hinting that we're endorsing candidates. On the other hand, we are completely allowed to take stands on issues, and we do that as well. Um, the, 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 the school meals is an example. Um, so I have, in, in fact, uh, from the pulpit called for voting in favor of particular initiatives uh, that, uh, that felt to me to, to fit within Jewish teachings. And so I start with the idea that my job is to share religious underpinnings that were that it's not what do I like, but rather what does Judaism have to say about these issues, and to, to share what it has to say. As to how you do how you navigate things, it all depends on the issue and the congregation. There are a lot of things that in our congregation people pretty widely agree on, and so I am not hesitant in those situations to advocate for particular courses of action from the pulpit because I, I, I feel my job there is to educate and mobilize. However, there are also issues that there, is, uh, that there are disagreements. And for those, I, I agree, I think I raise the issue and then I try to find opportunities for study of texts uh, and say to people, all right, where are you, you know, where are you starting from? And what do you make of this text and what do you make of that and and have the conversation resolve itself um, there are there are all kinds of ways to do that on you know and there have been helpful ways of doing this on on certain very complex issues and uh, when that happens that's how we try to to do it Be keeping in mind throughout that our job is to see what is true to the larger teachings of our tradition, uh, not just what does it feel like because I happen to be a Democrat or a Republican. Oh, and last, and related to that, of course, is trying to get out of, we're for this because our party is for that. And it's not about parties. It's about, you know, what our, our teachings have to say. I think um, that last part's really, really important. I think sometimes faith is not always viewed as a legitimate discussion partner, in particular when it comes to politics. And so I would be, uh, or politics, that's not the right word to use, but social concerns. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious kind of your all's thoughts on, on why faith is an important conversation partner in that realm of social concern uh, and in particular justice, because I think that kind of gets at the heart of this conversation. Why should we wear our, our kind of faith hats, if you will, to the table when we have these discussions? Well, I'd say we do it because we have, because that, because otherwise we aren't living our faith. Our faith, it doesn't exist in Judaism, the, the, the distinction between belief and action is not very strong. It, it, they are related. They're, they're merged together. There's no such thing as, to me as a, a sermon. On, 
Well, even the concept of religion is not a Jewish word. It's, it's all about living a, a, a holy life. And there is no way that you live a holy life and are cut off from the concerns of the larger world. That is, in fact, in our teaching, the opposite of holiness. That is, that is selfishness. So uh, to me, there is no choice but to be involved in these issues. The question is how to navigate getting a community to work together about it. I've generally found that objections to um, positions as being political come usually from a particular point of view. That is to say, it's only political if I don't like it. And so, you know, I, I, I what I hear underlying that is a question of, are you, re- is this really a matter of faith and justice, or are you in fact just parroting a party line? And that's where I try to make it important to explain, no, I didn't get any of these talking points from Fox News or MSNBC. I got them from what our tradition teaches. Yeah. At at, uh, Franklin Federated, we have a social justice team, and they organized around the election time. First, they did research as to where each candidate stood on issues that are relevant to people of faith. Mm-hmm. And and then they we had a discussion, an after-church discussion, about the four questions that were on the ballot and how do we bring our values and our perspective to that. Again, not advising which stand to take, but, but just how do we approach them giving up that selfishness lens, right, of, of releasing what's good for me and, and looking at it through faith values. And there were a couple of people who didn't go because they thought, there shouldn't be, you shouldn't be stepping into this political ground. And and I just think it's so important to separate out politics from partisanship mm-hmm. That and that politics is part of what we do, right? If, if you consider politics about getting involved in society and, and addressing societal problems, I think our faith is and ought to be political and that we are not fulfilling our purpose if we shy away from that, if we won't at least explore what, what the issues are, and again, try to bring that, that faith and values perspective to it and moral consciousness to it. Yeah, my, I mean, that's my kind of sense too. There's the famous quote by John Wesley that said, there's no such thing as a holy solitary. Mm-hmm. And the quote goes on, but essentially saying, hey, you know, our faith involves relationships. And he, he this is not the terms he used, but therefore faith is inherently political in the sense that politics deals with how people relate to one another and what are the social constructs by which we come together and form a society and therefore faith has everything to do with to do with that so I wanted to make sure to raise that the other thing that I kind of think we take we may take for granted around this table but is really important to highlight is that faith does provide a a moral and ethical anchor uh, and doesn't just kind of blow with the breeze Mm -hmm. of whatever kind of the prevailing sentiment might be. It Mm -hmm. it gives us a grounding and an understanding of what what it means to be good and what it means to be just. And I think it's important for us to say that. Now, our traditions, I think generally, I'd go so far as to say most religious traditions kind of point in the same 
general direction mm-hmm. of what good and just mean. Surely not all and not in all the details, but we kind of point in all that mm-hmm. same direction. And I think that anchor is really important in the, that, in the conversation uh, to say, you know, our tradition holds us in place to promote a certain kind of good. And that allows for arguably better conversation than on the issue. <laughs> and I love the, the second suggestion in this of, of roles they can play, of being a bridge to, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of diversity in churches, I would say, these days, right? There's a lot of homogeneity in terms of age and race, and, um, but there is political diversity, I would say. And so to have a place where people who love each other, who consider themselves family in a lot of ways, to be able to have a place where they can talk about differences and explore what the thinking is behind it, in a place where they're not going to be shunned or criticized or hated because of a different perspective. I, I think it, it serves a great purpose that way. And, yeah. and I think, you know, churches have gotten it way wrong a lot of times. <laughs> they have been too complicit uh, with, with society's wills, the popular opinion. I'm reading a book right now by Jamar Tisby about Oh, what is it? The color of compromise about about churches' collaboration with with racism, with white supremacist attitudes th- through the centuries, and it's you know we have some atoning to do. So I can see some hesitation about the prophetic voice, right? Saying we have an answer, we have a solution because we have gotten it wrong, but I do think we need to s- still take the chance and speak out while at the same time being open to to see our blind spots as much as we can. I, I want to especially. I agree with you about both parts, but I especially want to emphasize your first point about the uh, creating a community where conversations can happen. When you think about so many of our um, interactions, we are either in places where we are with everyone who agrees with us on everything about politics because that's why we are there. You know, we're, we do all kinds of uh, uh, organizations that are about that. Or we are with people where no one wants to talk about this at all because it's going to mess up the, con- the, the community. So we, they, they shy away from those conversations. They're different kinds of – they're there for other purposes. A church or a synagogue is a place where people that – they're not there principally about the politics, about uh, – in the largest sense, as you say, not partisanship but about politics. They're not there for that. It's not their main purpose. But it is a purpose and therefore they are able to be together with people they may not always agree with and they have – they built up those connections and those relationships so that with that, with the right facilitation, they can start to talk about things that they do disagree with without turning each other into enemies no one wants to have anything to do with. It's, It's a special opportunity that we have and we have to take advantage of it. And arguably, societally, communities of faith are the only place where that still happens yep. in American culture. Yep. The only place. Agreed. In your second point that, that you had raised, um, Reverend Doreen, you talked about um, in the briefing a loving place that is both safe and brave. And I think that's what you've been describing, a safe place that would help to raise awareness and discuss? Would you And even that? to take risk. Mm-hmm. So it risks taking some form of action. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and there has to be some amount of humility on whether or not that course of action is is correct or not. So the Franklin Interfaith Council has made a number of st- of statements. It risks saying something. You know, we may look back on some of the statements that we've made ten years from now and be like, oh, phew, maybe we got that one wrong. Yeah. But it risk. It provides a safe place to take the risk. I, I mean, I think. Uh, it's not not one of the faith traditions represented at the table right now, but I, I think when you think about what St. John's is trying to do with the affordable housing on their mm-hmm. property, whether you agree with it or not, they're trying to take a risk to say my our faith calls us to address this issue and we're, we're going to try and find a creative solution to that. Uh, and so I think faith the faith community provides that sort of opportunity to to risk an action to risk action to enact one's faith and seek justice for our neighbors years ago before either of my co-panelists were here uh, the early on when I was here the interfaith council passed a resolution about gun violence um, you know it's obviously a controversial issue um, but it was the feeling that we just could not uh, stay silent. And uh, so, you know, we're able to bridge differences within the Interfaith Council and to come up with a resolution that everyone could agree with that did not just sound like, oh, it's terrible when bad things happen, it would, that had some, some substance to it. And that's what, that's what these conversations, th- th- that's what the hard conversations have to be about. And I just want to, I mean, again, some people will come at me, church and politics don't miss, you've got to keep them separate. But but the constitutional amendment was about keeping the state out of the church, not keeping the church out of the state, so to speak, right? So it was never about we can't bring our faith into life and into society. It was really about that the government can't mm-hmm. create a church for itself or make certain requirements or impose on the freedom of, of religious expression for anybody that that's really where the separation is meant to be, but that we are always, I think, called to to bring our lives of faith and live them with integrity. Yeah, I mean, I'll go out of my Jewish comfort zone to talk more about American history, but we would not have, slavery would not have ended if it had not been for the role of um, the churches in America speaking about that. And I know that in the, the Reform Jewish movement, there was a, debate about that and there were some people who said, oh, it's fine and then there were plenty of people who said, no, it isn't and and one rabbi in particular basically got run out of his pulpit in Baltimore, ended up in Philadelphia because he spoke out against slavery. Uh, these are th- – these moral actions that come out of faith traditions have changed this country and we would be substantially worse off if they hadn't happened. So I will – quote, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and critic of the state, never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. But if the church will free itself from the shackles of a deadening status quo and recover its great historic mission, will speak and act fearlessly and insistently in terms of justice and peace, it will enkindle the imagination of humankind and fire the souls of people, imbuing them with the glowing and ardent love for truth, justice, and peace. 
And then I offer again this note of caution and humility, a quote from Jim Wallace. He says, faith can cut in so many ways. If you are penitent and not triumphal, it can move us to repentance and accountability and help reach for something higher than ourselves. That can be a powerful thing that will move us beyond politics as usual. When it's designed to certify our righteousness, that can be a dangerous thing. Then it pushes self-criticism aside and there is no reflection. So I would just offer discern with humility, but speak and act to better the world. What a wonderful way to bring this conversation to a close. Thank you very much, Reverend Doreen. And I would like to thank our faith leaders, Rabbi Tom Alpert, Pastor Jacob Yunker, and Reverend Doreen Otten has really been an opportunity for us to learn, reflect, and uh, think about what is ahead of us. We also thank Keith Palmieri, who keeps us going on the radio, Franklin Radio, who gives us this space to record and to share. As always, our contact information for our faith leaders is available through the Interfaith Council website, which is franklininterfaith.org. And I thank you very much on behalf of Jay Horrigan, who did not, who wasn't able to join us, but he was with us in spirit. And I'm Pandora Carlucci. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.